Sometimes the best way to decide if you really want to read a book is to hear directly from the source. Today, I'll be interviewing author Kathleen O'Neill Greer about Cries from the Lost Island from Daw Publishing. I previously mentioned this title in my March recommendations on New Book Tuesday episode, and when I got the opportunity to sit down and discuss things with uh, Kathleen, I couldn't resist. Daw sent me your book a while ago after they sent me the like the little flyer that they send out talking about Cries from the Lost Island, and I emailed her back. So and Stephanie was like, she's like, did you finish the email? I'm like, no, it said historical fantasy in Egypt. I want, I would like to read it. Thank you. So it was a really fascinating premise uh, for Cries from the Lost Island. And I was wondering what kind of made you want to play around with the legend of Cleopatra and reincarnation. Uh, It's a, a very old Egyptian belief that Cleopatra would be reincarnated over and over again and come at a time when her people needed her, which is a really interesting uh, idea that I wanted to play with. But I was more intrigued, honestly, wrote by where the lost graves of Mark Antony and Cleopatra are. As an archaeologist, I've been fascinated for years trying to figure out where their burials might be. And this gave me a chance, using uh, fantasy and teenagers, to discuss where the actual graves might be located. Well, I was certainly fascinated. And I was also particularly interested because you decided to make them teenagers and send them on this quest. Um, Was it just because you wanted to look at it through the lens of somebody potentially younger looking back at history that you chose to make them starting ages under 18? Or was there something else that kind of motivated you? There's an excitement um, when you are a teenager and you're discovering history for the first time in archaeology. At least Mm -hmm. it was for me. And I wanted to tell it through the eyes of people who would see the question fresh and new and fascinating. And that's why I chose teenagers. Well, it was a really smart move um, because it set up these really interesting dynamics between them as teenagers, but them also between the adults to how they responded to the children. And well, you know, the preteens and teens and post-teens, you know, where we're all a little bit special. But Hal kind of had a particular relationship, and it was interesting to see how his parents tried to deal with him as he was, uh, you know, trying to navigate school and friendships and this relationship they had with Cleo, where they kind of burned hot and cold every once in a while. So when you were developing the relationship dynamics that you were going to have between the characters, um, how did you try to how did how did you kind of approach that when you were putting together your your story to make it fit in with this quest you wanted to build send them on yeah so cleo uh who is the reincarnated cleopatra the seventh uh, queen of egypt is uh a troubled young girl uh, a troubled young woman let me put it that way um she went through rioting and the murder of her parents in egypt and when how meets her he's absolutely fascinated with roman and egyptian history so being around cleo is the most incredible thing in his life because she can tell him things about the history of egypt and rome that he would never find in a book and it it was it's sort of an interesting dynamic with his parents because i remember my own parents i had uh, there were a lot of immigrants in my school in california when i was growing up and they still are And it was an interesting dynamic because your parents are always half supportive and very tolerant of of immigrants and scared at the same time. And I think that's what Hell's parents are. 
Okay, well, that really makes that actually makes more sense now because for there were there were some times when I was reading, I'm like, why are you talking? I'm like, that is the opposite, and I was like, okay, well, that is, you know, I'm an adult now, looking back at some of these situations, having more of an adult response, but also remembering how I would have behaved when I was at the same age. So um, it's set up for some interesting reading and and some levels and a place where people could connect to the story at different places, because I really came into it excited about the history. And I like the fact that you made Hal a budding historian and that, you know, Cleo is a living artifact, so to speak. Uh, but you also had these elements of the supernatural. When you were deciding between what you wanted to bring in from mythology and legend and the supernatural to blend in with your history and then to put together for your, your mystery, what elements kind of really, you know, were attractive to you or that you thought would work best with this or would kind of give you a way to navigate around the culture clashes that you said you were talking about from the differences of ages? Yeah, the most interesting thing to me, I think, about uh, ancient Egyptian history and mythology is uh, the way that the gods and gods worked throughout history, Egyptian history. And I wanted to make them as real as I possibly could in the circumstances where Hal sees them. Uh, but I also wanted to have the ghost of Cleopatra guiding him and pursuing him throughout the entire story. And I did that because as teenagers, I think the supernatural is more accessible to us, whether you believe it or not. Uh, teenagers seem to be more open to things like that. And I think for Hal, it is character formation, you know, the best kind of character formation because it allows him to ask himself questions about what is reality, what is sanity, um, who were the gods, what are ghosts, what are demons, you know, since demons play a huge role in the book. Um, and I, I think that's the reason that I chose the demons, gods, and ghosts that I did is because Hal needed them to become who he needed to be. Okay. Because it was, uh, when you're reading, I don't want to spoil, because obviously I want people to buy the book and read the book. Uh, it was interesting to see which elements that he was very open to accepting. And it seemed like the ones that he felt like he could find an immediate historical connection for, or that he had a personal relationship, like with his friend, Biker Witch. Uh, mm -hmm. He was he was far more open to being accepting of those supernatural elements. But when they got to Egypt and other supernatural things were happening, he's like, nope, <laughs> they're yeah. delusional. Well, he, yeah, well, he's uh, he's grieving over the love of his life, the loss of the, the love of his life. And and I think for Hal, he's trying to figure out whether his grief really is what his mother, his mother's a psychiatrist and she mm -hmm. thinks he's going through you know, dissociative identity disorder and having delusions. And he has to ask himself that same question, though. Is it real? What I'm seeing, is this real? Or am I imagining this? Is it part of the grieving process that I'm going through? I thought it was an interesting question because people tend to have very small and narrow boxes for how they think people handle grief, especially when you're younger. So to kind of have that be an overt layer in the story was really interesting. And it took what could be considered to be some very standard 
relationship dynamics within the YA writing community. And it put them in a different light that I think gave them a spin that helped move this story along. And I was wondering that when you were, I, I know you're an archaeologist. It's my understanding that you, when you were younger, you actually got to go to Egypt on a dig. Is oh, yes, that I did. Yes, 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 I did. First of all, that's really cool. <laughs> I have it was. <laughs> Uh, so I was wondering when you were doing your world building and you were trying to decide which elements, because I mean, your writing has a really rich, knowledgeable expertise that has a thread through it, but it never seemed to overwhelm the suspense or the quest. So when you were coming together with your process and building this kind of, what were the challenges that you faced when you were trying to balance those elements and make them work together to come for a story that had cohesion? You know, the, the biggest challenge that I always face is how much historical and archaeological information is too much. And, you know, you amass all this information, well, and then you have to say to yourself, what is absolutely essential for the story and cut out everything that isn't. If it doesn't help your characters find the solution, no matter how fascinating it is, it needs to go because it slows the story down. But that's the most difficult thing that you have to deal with is how much do you put in? Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> I don't know if I could do it. I I love history, so I think I probably would found, fall down a rabbit hole and forget to stop researching. <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to lie, I would. Um, but when you were going through this process, what was your favorite character to write? Uh, that's a tough question. Probably Hal, who's the leading character, but also Roberto. I just, as his, as Hal's best friend, who, he is an absolutely loyal guy. And he's, you know, he's on the fringe. He's kind of an odd character with a weird sense of humor. And I said, I really enjoyed the interplay between Hal and Roberto. So I think Hal is my favorite character, but I also really loved Roberto. Okay, okay. I, I have a thing for anti-heroes and villains and people who kind of slide into the gray. So I really liked Robert. So uh, oh. <laughs> I'm, not, Good. I'm not gonna lie, but I did. I, I mean, it, it it added a sense of believability to the story because uh, this is one of those worlds where when you start reading, there are going to be different things that are pulling for your attention. And a couple of times I was like, is that real? did she make that up? And I'm like, Kathy, you are sending me to Google. So I would go and I would look something up and I was like, no, that's totally her. So that's totally fake, but it's really cool. And I wish it was real. But um, the more you kind of get into their quest and, you know, it spans from Colorado to Egypt and you really do get this sense of the world and it's the sense of ancient mystery, the supernatural, mm -hmm. you know, the supernatural really works, but this turns into a historical, you know, mystery. Uh, because it's like, where are, there, where are the graves? And I was like, see, now I right. want to know. I'm mad at you. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all do. We all want to know. You know, it, it's, it's always been a discussion among archaeologists because when uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra were defeated at the Battle of Actium, 31 BC, Octavian, who would become Augustus, the first uh, emperor of Rome, went to great lengths to destroy everything that he could, about even erasing their memory from the historical books, right? When he wrote his own account of the Battle of Actium, he didn't even mention their names. So he did everything he could to destroy their memories. 
And there are historians who were under the thumb of uh, Augustus writing who said, oh, he was so good to them. They built these huge monuments for them, right? Which no other historian throughout history had recorded. And it did just seem so unlikely. It has always seemed unlikely to archaeologists that there was such a place. He must have hidden their graves in the same way that he hid the history about them. And so the question is, where are they? And I, you know, I obviously I'm not going to spoil the story for people. I have my own archaeological theories about that, but it's it's a fascinating question. It is, and I really like the way that you pulled everybody in without ever making it lose its contemporary feel. And I think sometimes when people decide that they want to put a book with this much dense history in it into YA, but they put it in a a, a current historical setting that they forget about that. But this book, the suspense elements and the quest that they went on, and I'm trying really hard not to spoil, but the people they start running into and the places that they have to go, uh, it kept this feeling really present and it felt deliberate. And and and, and I, I really, and, and I was just interested, like, you, you know, it's a very interesting legend to be inspired by. It is. And it's it's one of those things that has inspired me since I was about 12 years old. So writing about it was just a joy. Yeah, that's just not fair. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I almost want to listen to the audiobook and have someone read this to me just so like my hands are free so I can be looking up different things. Uh, it had movement and it had action. When you write with your husband, is your writing process different from when you write individually to do like a standalone like this? Uh, it is uh, in the sense that uh, my husband, W. Michael Gere, and I spend every breakfast, lunch, and dinner discussing plot and characters when we're co-authoring a book. And, you know, we rewrite the same passage, each of us, the same passage a dozen times before we're happy with it. But in a real sense, all of our books are co-authored, I have to tell you, Roe. Even when my own name is on it or Mike's name is on it, the other person has gone through the manuscript, written tiny pieces, corrected some grammatical errors, added some dialogue. So it may be a minor co-authoring, but nonetheless, all of our books are basically co-authored. Well, that's just a uh, completely whole another brain to pick for this for really kind of rich background and pacing. So you have a built-in editor and beta, beta reader when you're doing this solo. That's not fair. That's just not fair. <laughs> it is. I really enjoy it. <laughs> uh, so I was looking and doing some research because, you know, prepping for interviews is the one time that you can have permission to stalk somebody without it actually seeming creepy. And yeah. I noticed in a couple of interviews that you said your favorite book was Dune and your favorite film was Galaxy Quest. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, love them. Absolutely love them. Yeah. I just, I, I also, I was like, so I'm sitting here going, well, referring to the historical documents, I was like, you get to do that. You actually get to do that with your life because you're an actual, you know, archaeologist and you were a state historian. So that right. that, that was just a really interesting um, so with those kinds of, you know, influences or impacts, it, how does that kind of inform how you look at when you want to build a world for writing? It, it informs world building at the most fundamental levels. So when you're trying to create the plot, you use the history as the basic plot line. Um, and the great thing about writing fantasy, though, is that you can take your conclusions for the history 
in logical directions, but nonetheless, it's still fantasy. You're fantasizing what the answer might be. So it gives you a little more freedom. But world building based upon history and historical characters that are thoroughly documented, like Mark Antony and Cleopatra, is just an absolute joy when you care about the past and trying to accurately portray who these people were. So, I mean, it's history and archaeology informs every single moment of the world building and the plotting. Okay, well, that makes sense. It also sounds slightly above my skill level. (laughs) Probably um, not. (laughs) We'll see. One day we'll see. But it's just, I I always think that when I'm reading a book like this, it read really quickly because, um, like, it made really good use of the words and time. And sometimes when people come from a more academic background, they reach for that bigger word rather than the one that Mm. people may have more familiarity with. Uh, Sometimes you find yourself having to go back and say, I can say this more simply or one word will do here, or maybe I've said it too simply for someone to really kind of grasp because you don't want to lose the history in order to maintain the simplicity to read. Um, So when you have to balance those elements, you know, how does, what do you think? That is a constant struggle in writing a story row. So you're always going through and you're writing it like a historian would. And then you go back and you say, wait a minute. You know, this is too complicated. I don't need this. Delete it. Just, you know, boil it down to the most basic facts that are necessary for the story. And especially, you know, when you're using teenagers, you're going to use the kind of language that they use. So at least that's your goal is to try to use the language that they use. Right. Did you have anybody who was uh, of the age group of your um, protagonists read the book as a Several. beta? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Matter of fact, they really hit me on my languages here and there. <laughs> like, I wouldn't say this. <laughs> okay, out. <laughs> yeah, you, ha- you kind of have to, I think. Um, and, and that goes for any genre that you're writing in. If you're doing science fiction, you need a beta reader who's a big science fiction fan because they can tell you, you know, what works and what doesn't and what's believable for a diehard science fiction fan. And the same is true of YA YA literature is only somebody who's a young adult can really tell you whether it works or doesn't. Right. So is there a difference for when you're writing something that's science fiction based versus fantasy based? Yes, uh, there is. When you're writing something that's science fiction based, you're using hard sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, and you may use those things in fantasy, but you're also using the supernatural and more fantastic elements like demons, gods, goddesses, and ghosts. Is there a difference in the process for you? Uh, Yes, in the sense that the research is different. So if I'm doing a historical fantasy, I'm, I'm doing primarily history and uh, mythology. If I'm writing a science fiction novel, I'm doing primarily physics and biology. So the research process is different in terms of subject matter, but uh, not how you go about writing the story so much. Do you find one more easy to translate into your writing than the other? Because it seems like your background kind of would even you out a little at least with, you know, your own skill sets that you're bringing to the table. So does one 
feel more of a natural process for you than the other? Because I've read some of your other books and it doesn't show up in your writing. So kudos to you. I was just wondering, like, but on the process to getting to the final product, does one feel a little bit more like it flows easier for you or is it just a different part of your brain? It's uh, a different part of my brain. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I really enjoy writing uh, from the perspective of the people who believe that supernatural events were real. Uh, and you can tell that throughout our prehistory series as well as our science fiction, fantasy, or anything else. But I enjoy writing from the perspective of the people who believed in the supernatural. And I can do that in science fiction as well. I just have to give a science-based explanation for what seems to be supernatural. So in one, you have to give a science-based explanation. In the other, you don't. But I like them both. Okay. Okay. Well, that's just, I mean, I don't even... <laughs> I mean, I really liked this book. Um, I think I liked this. I, for me, I like history almost as much as I like science, but I like reading history into fantasy more than I do historical sci-fi, if that makes any sense. Uh-huh, it does. So it kind of felt like this was coming from a different place in your head than some of the other books that I had read from you. And I was just curious about what's the process to getting there because it's just not fair. I'm, you know, I'm going to sit here. This is just going to be an envy call. This is just an envy interview at this point. That's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the process, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to say the process when you're writing it is basically the same except when you're doing fantasy the supernatural is more real in your mind than when you're doing science fiction that seems to be supernatural because mm -hmm. you have the science always in your, the back of your mind for what's really happening out there so i i don't know it's but it is a slightly different process you're right well see that just makes it more interesting when i find out that your favorite villain is hannibal lecter because he kind of oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I did my research. It happened. But... <laughs> <laughs> he's so, a great what's... villain. Okay. I love Hannibal Lecter. I, I, he's one of my favorites on screen and in writing. So what's actually, what draws you to Hannibal Lecter? What makes him your favorite villain? Well, first of all, he's actually trying to help Clarice Starling overcome psychological problems. So uh, automatically I'm going, this is the most horrible human being you can even imagine and yet he's trying to help Clarice resolve the major problems in her life and you're sitting there going well it can't be all bad if he's doing that and I, I once said to, to uh, my husband Mike wow that is the most wonderful powerful you know character I have ever read and Mike said are you crazy he's awful and I said that's the point <laughs> of course he's awful but no, he's, what makes him so great is that he understands human beings on a level that most of us can't even guess because of his psychiatric background, and he actually endeavors to help his patients, including Clarice Starling. So he's multifaceted. He's a great character. Yeah, he's a giver, and, you know, he might eat you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's, I think that's probably the most like rational based reason anyone's ever given me for why they like Hannibal Lecter. I was just like, I like him. Just there's a list of reasons why I like him. None of them are 
potentially saying, and since I'm not open to psychiatric evaluation right now, we're just going to go with I like Apple Lecter. <laughs> but yeah, okay. it's just, I mean, it's just like when I was reading this book and the way that you were kind of, you, the, the way that you endowed your demons and the the more, you know, unhappy elements and the people who were trying to, you know, reach the end of the, the, the journey before Hal got there or who just were trying to interrupt him. It's like there just seemed to be the mission, stop how, and then there also just seemed to be this other ominous thing that kind of grew as the story went along. And it was really fascinating how you managed to pull in these things. And because it always left the question open of, is this the time of re it was like, well, is this when we need her the most? Did we screw up? She's dead. What did we do wrong? You know, so it kind of pulled in all of these other ideas that go along with the idea that Cleopatra will be reincarnated at the time when her people need her most and that she has this artifact and she's left it with Hal and Hal now has to take it to this place. But there's these, there's like, there was all of this other stuff that kind of mixed in and I like anything that doesn't stay into this world that has to be black or white. Everybody had a motivation and felt like their motivation was just. And anything that they had to do in furtherance of that motivation was justified. So right. I really, yeah, I love it when stories came in, which is why I was just curious what your reasoning was, you know, why you like Cannibal Lecter, because that's kind of why I like him. I'm like, he has a goal. It's not your goal, but he totally has a goal. And if you let him explain it to you, you know, over dinner, It'll absolutely yeah. make sense. <laughs> Not that you want to have dinner with him, but no, yes, it no. would. Drink the wine. <laughs> Don't take the plate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Cries yeah. from the Lost Island was definitely one of my favorites. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, you know, one of the, the great things about terrific villains, too, is they make you examine who you are in your mm -hmm. most evil elements of your own personality that's what makes a great villain. It really is. And that's why towards the end of this book, I started feeling like it was more of a historical mystery because mm -hmm. you gave a certain realness to even the supernatural elements and to the forces that were acting against him that I kind of forgot that they had a supernatural root. And I was like, that's rude. I just, mm. Oh, like, I, I know, love that. That's great yeah. to hear. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of really worked out that way. If you just kind of left yourself open to the story and let it take you where it wanted to go, it started to get more and more grounded. And I was like, she got me believing in a whole ass myth. I just, I'm like, I'm out here mad. I have theories. <laughs> so the yeah. best thing you could tell me. <laughs> I mean, it really worked. If, if you let the story just grab you with the mystery and, and the quest that they're sent on, it can really grab you. And I just, I just wanted to know a little bit more about your background process because um, on my new, new book Tuesday, I did tell people about Cries from the Lost Island. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna surprise them with the interview with you later. They don't know this podcast episode is coming because I like to keep it random. Right, that's great. Yeah. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, all the rest of my questions are in red, which equals spoilers. So I'm going to try to. I'm going to try not to do that. Ro, it has been just such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for the great questions. I really Absolutely. enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for making the time. And uh, I hope you and all your people are safe and stay that way. And I hope you and all yours are safe, too. Thanks. Oh, I'm hiding out. I'm a hermit. My hermitage is fully stacked. I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> all, of, all of readers are hermits, naturally. That's 
That's a good I'm thing not, these days. <laughs> pretty much. I'm going to tell you, my last run outside the house, I went to the grocery store. I went to the big lots to pick up all of my juices and single serves and dry goods. I went by the Amazon locker to pick up the stuff I had, had sent to me. And then I went by the bookstore and picked up all of my books that I had pre-ordered. And then I came home and I'm good. <laughs> all essentials. Absolutely. <laughs> Pretty much. It's a big, huge circle. And I made sure it ended up with a ride by the bookstore. So <laughs> that's great. You know, bookworms of the world. We are all covered. Thank you for joining me for this episode of I Talk Shit and Read. I hope you enjoyed the interview and might think about in your quarantine reading, picking up a copy of Cries from the Lost Island, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.